Today I wanted to start off with a uh, icebreaker question, all right? So um, if you have your, maybe, do, do all of you have the bulletins? Okay, but it's, it's in the bulletins. What is one shocking phone call that you have received? Okay, what is one shocking phone call that you have received? And we have a little bit of a smaller group, so is it okay if we just talk about it together? Is that all right? Okay, what is one shocking phone call that you received? If you can recall a time that you got uh, a phone call like this, um, just raise your hand or something or just like say it out loud. might just put people on the spot, but that's okay. Does anyone know? Does anyone have one? No one wants to go first. That's probably what it is. <laughs> well, I have one that I'm going to share, but I wanted to save it for um, my message. It kind of ties in with my message, so. But I'm kind of curious, like, if you ever received one like this. It seems like you have one, but you don't want to go first, Courtney. You don't have one? You don't have one? Oh, you do have one, but you don't want to go first. Okay. That's great. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like what I was expecting. Yeah, the, the story I'm going to share is pretty bad. Uh-huh. Your what? Oh. Was it totally unexpected? Yeah. She was 45. Oh. 45? Yeah. Holy crap. Okay. I'll have to ask you about that later, like how she passed away and so. Oh, that's that's pretty rough. Okay. Thanks for sharing. Um, anyone else? George, you have one? I feel like you would have a lot. No, not a lot. <laughs> The what? Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> right. Obviously, they take the cell phone away. Yeah, if they're holding you. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Oh, you're a good friend, and that's pretty amazing that he remembered your. Yeah. Numerical. <laughs> Who remembers phone numbers these days? I only I only know my wife's. Yeah. Uh, like a good shocking one. Okay. Oh. Yeah, I remember you telling me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was all planned, like he was planning on proposing that day, or, or maybe he was, but he didn't tell you guys about it. Yeah, yeah, that wasn't that long ago, right? It was like three years ago, yeah. two, three years ago, yeah, and they're still married, right? 
Yeah, that's <laughs> that's good. <laughs> I don't know about that. How do you measure that? Yeah, that's great. All right, let's do one more. Uh, ben or Paul or Riley, you guys have one? Sad one? Okay, okay. How old was he? Like about to graduate college. Oh yeah, just graduated. Oh man. That's rough. Okay. Well, um, okay. well, my story is not nearly as sad as that. Um, so when I was a few years ago, when I was a young adult pastor, um, a former student of mine who had become a young adult she you know uh, went to college and all that and uh, she called me like on uh, a Monday or no no it was a Tuesday morning I remember because I was uh, in my office and uh, I hadn't seen this young woman in a long time so I was kind of surprised to get this phone call from her and uh, you know she sounded all frantic you know and she's like pretending to small talk a little bit because I haven't spoken to her in a few years. She's like, hey, Pastor Al, how are you? I'm like, oh, I'm good. How are you? Long time no, no see. And she's like, yeah, yeah. But I knew that something was up just like by the tone of her voice. And um, uh, she's, uh, she said, I'm sorry to just call you like out of nowhere like this, but I really needed to talk to a pastor. And I don't really know any other pastors besides you. So I was like, okay, that's fine. What's up? And uh, she said, uh, on Saturday night, I did something really stupid. And uh, I went out with my friends, and we went dancing and drinking and stuff. And I was like, okay, that's fine. Uh, what's the big deal? She goes, but uh, I met this guy, and um, I, I think uh, we were hanging out, but then, um, but I was so drunk, I don't really remember. And then the next morning, I woke up in his apartment and uh, in his bed, and I think we had sex. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, how do you feel about it? And then she said, uh, I feel like crap, you know? Well, she used other language, more colorful language, but yeah, I feel like crap, you know? And I just wanted to talk to a pastor to kind of confess. And I said, okay, well, do you feel better that you got it off your chest? And she said, no. Um, can you just tell me that I'm forgiven? That like God forgives me? And I said, sure. Uh, God forgives you. Like, do you, I mean, like, clearly you're sorry about what happened. And she said, yes, yes, I'm very, very sorry for what happened. And I said, um, yes, God forgives you. And then I, you know, I, I said her name. Uh, and then I said, do you want me to pray for you? And then she said, yes, please pray for me. And so I just prayed for her right then and there over the phone. Um, it was like a Tuesday morning and you know, I, I usually took my Mondays off at that time in my life. And so that was like the first thing that kind of greeted me that week was this really, really um, kind of intense phone call, right? And then after I prayed for her, uh, I said, are, are you okay now? 
she said, yes, yes, I feel much better. Thank you so much, Pastor Al. And um, she said, I, I just wanted to get, off, get this off my chest so that I don't go to hell. And I was like, okay. And then, and then she hung up. That's how she hung up. That's the last time I ever spoke to her. All right, I haven't spoken to her since. And uh, after that phone call, I was just like sitting there like, like blown away, right? I was like sitting there in my office and I was like, well, that was such a weird, it was really disturbing on many levels, okay? Like, um, first of all, it was kind of disturbing because, uh, um, you know, she, she didn't seem like the type of person that would have a one night stand, okay? Uh, at least not, and so, that part kind of bothered me. You know, I don't really care all that much, you know, that she had sex with this person, but it was more like, uh, you know, she didn't even know his name, you know, and then the other part that bothered me was that, like, I haven't spoken to her in years, and then this is how she calls me, that she has no other uh, spiritual guide or older kind of mentor figure to share this with. But the, la the way she ended the call, was the most shocking part, right? That like, I just wanted to get this off my chest so that I don't go to hell and then she hung up. <laughs> that was like so shocking to me. And then that kind of, that phone call made me reevaluate everything that I did regarding ministry. Because up until that point, I used to believe that my purpose, my goal as a pastor was to convert as many people as possible so that uh, they could go to heaven, right? So that I could share the gospel with them, share the good news of Jesus Christ uh, so that they don't go to hell, right? And I'm sure somewhere in the past, I, I said this to her as, you know, because I was her former youth pastor, right? So I must have said this to her. I mean, it's not like I like beat people over the head with it, you know? Um, but there must have been something from her past, either something I said or maybe something else, uh, another pastor she had. Uh, had said to her that like really stuck with her and that if she isn't forgiven of her sins if she doesn't live a good life then she's gonna go to hell she's gonna like burn in hell forever or something so you know many of you if, if you grew up in the church like I did um, you probably have understood maybe the gospel was something like this right um, and the goal of our Christian lives is to uh, and there are certain languages that we would use, like be born again, or saved, or uh, become a believer. And I used to think that the gospel of Jesus Christ was this. Jesus came down to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, resurrected from the dead, and then ascended into heaven so that we could be his sons and daughters to get into heaven. Okay, I used to believe that was the gospel. Okay, now after years of wrestling with my own uh, questions and unlearning a lot of the stuff that I learned in like religious institutions um, and doing my own like uh, research and after years and years of prayer, I've come to realize that the true gospel of Jesus Christ is this. Jesus Christ came down to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, then resurrected from the dead so that we could be adopted as his sons and daughters so that we could bring heaven here to earth. It's not so that we could ultimately go to heaven, okay? That is really not the main point of the gospel. The main point of the gospel is to bring heaven 
here to earth. Last week, we discovered that to pursue joy, uh, that we are to pursue joy instead of happiness. And we learned some of the key differences between joy and happiness. Um, Joy leads to gratitude, while happiness leads to entitlement. Joy leads to altruism, while happiness leads to selfishness. And joy leads to, joy is spiritual, while happiness is circumstantial. And the central truth for today's message is this, okay? The ultimate joy is not in the destination, okay? It is in the journey. The joy is not in the destination, it is in the journey. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 10? Turn with me in your Bible apps to Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. If you do not have your Bibles, then uh, I will read it for us. Luke 10, 1 through 11. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. All right. So um, we just read from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. And here are a few things about Jesus's ministry while he was here on earth. Uh, He only did ministry uh, for three years. Okay. Uh, But there are a few facts about his ministry that some of you might not know. Okay. First, Jesus often sent out his disciples and followers on missions or like little uh, tasks or jobs. And these were meant to replicate, uh, replicate a lot of the same things that Jesus himself was doing. Healing the sick, exercising demons, loving the outcasts, and teaching about the kingdom of God. The other thing uh, that many of you might not know is that Jesus had the 12 well-known disciples, right, who are Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who was later replaced by Matthias. But beyond these 12, Jesus also had 72 followers, okay? He had 72 followers, many of whom were women. Now, there is a reason why Jesus had to pick 12 men to be his disciples because the culture at that time was very sexist. It was very chauvinistic. 
So if he had a woman as his part of his 12 disciples, he wouldn't be taken seriously, unfortunately. But among the 72 followers, there were women, okay? Some of the well, uh, better known people who were in the 72 were people like Mark, the gospel writer, uh, Barnabas, the mentor of Apostle Paul, Tabitha, the woman whom Peter raised from the dead, Mary Magdalene, who was the extravagant worshiper, and Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. Lazarus. And they would often be doing the same tasks that the disciples would be doing. Okay, so it was uh, pretty remarkable when, when you think about it. Like, it wasn't just Jesus and the 12 disciples all the time. The 12 were with him the entire time, okay? But these 72 were with him for a majority of the time. It wasn't like uh, this crowd of 72 that was there uh, with him the entire time, okay? But for a majority of his ministry, uh, he had uh, at least 72 followers with him who were doing a lot of these same things that Jesus was doing. And... The other interesting thing about Jesus' ministry is that when he would send his people out on tasks, when he would send his followers out on tasks, he would restrain himself. He wouldn't be doing anything, like, you know, like in terms of like doing the actual healing or the actual like exercising of demons or the actual like loving the neighbor, okay, or doing the teaching. When he would give these tasks to his followers, he would watch them and observe. Okay, and he would be there if anyone had uh, a task or something that was beyond them or if they had questions or they were having a hard time. Jesus would be there for his followers to encourage them and then they would go back out. And so this passage that we read today, I, I find it super encouraging because these words that Jesus is saying, he almost sounds like a, like a coach of a, of a sports team, right? And, and this is like, it's almost like uh, he gathers everyone around. He's like, okay, 72 of you, come, come together, right? And then he's like giving them like, he's hyping them up. He's like, all right, we're going to go out there, okay? And we're going to like bring the kingdom of God to them. You're going to love people. If you go into a town and they welcome you, stay there, hang out with them, okay? You're going to heal the sick. You're going to love the outcast. And uh, the kingdom of God is here, right? And uh, he, he's like hyping them up, right? And then he's sending them out. So during the early years of Jesus' ministry, Jesus would uh, send his people out to do these good works. And when they're done, okay, at the end of the day, they would come back together. They would gather back together. And Jesus, being like the coach, uh, like, would ask them about their experiences. He was like, what, is that? what was that like for you? Okay, what was that like for you? And they would gather back together. And it, it was um, almost like a, like a huddle, right? It was like a huddle. And oftentimes it would happen in like someone's home, like someone uh, in that town would open up their home. And usually there's like uh, good food involved because Jesus loved to eat, especially in the Gospel of Luke. Okay, Luke liked to emphasize the fact that Jesus loved eating. And one of the first things that Jesus did after he resurrected from the dead was he asked his disciples, do you have anything to eat? <laughs> You know, maybe, I mean, maybe it's because, you know, he hadn't eaten in three days or something. I don't know. But I kind of figure, like, resurrected Jesus doesn't need to eat. But he probably just loved eating just for the sake of eating. Which kind of tells me that, like, heaven's going to have food, even though we might not need it. <laughs> um, anyway, okay, I'm, I'm sidetracking. Uh, so they would gather together, probably around a table of food, right, and, and drinking uh, wine or water and 
they're talking about their day, okay? He would ask them like, how was your day, all right? What happened when you were uh, trying to heal this sick person? What happened when you were talking about the kingdom of God to this crowd, right? And so they would go out, do the work, and they would come back. And they would share about their struggles, their joys, their um, highs, their lows, and everything in between, right? And Jesus would encourage them, he would affirm them, and he would teach them or correct them wherever it was necessary. And then they would probably uh, sleep for the night, rest, and then the next day they would go out and do it all over again. So Jesus to them was kind of like their uh, source of spiritual life, right? Uh, I mean, he was their source of spiritual life, right? But after Jesus was crucified, died, and then resurrected and then ascended into heaven, where did they go? Right? Where did they go? So this is the first thing that we need to know about the spiritual journey, okay? Is that the journey needs a base camp, okay? The journey needs a base camp. Every journey, okay, if you think about any journey, okay, it needs a base camp, whether it's like a battle in war, uh, a voyage, or even something as simple as like a backpacking trip, right? You need a base camp, okay? Every journey needs a base camp. This could be in someone's home. It could be in a tent. It could even be a circle around the campfire, right? Every journey needs a base camp. A base camp is where you go to get refueled, rested, and recharged, all right? A base camp is where you go to get refueled, rested and recharged okay when i when i talk about being refueled these are the practical needs like supplies food water okay uh it's also where you go to get rest okay you sleep at the base camp okay or uh you're just spending so much of your energy out there you need somewhere to just rest and okay and to just let's just exhale a little bit right and just breathe and it's also where, uh, where you go to get recharged. And this is more like emotional, spiritual be, uh, recharge. Uh, this, is, this happens primarily in relationships. Okay? You fellowship, you encourage one another, you, ener you get energized, and then you're, you have enough strength to go back out there. Um, this is, so for me, at, at, at the hospital, um, my base camp is our chaplain's office. Okay? So I'm a chaplain at a hospital. Right, and at the beginning of the day, in the morning, when I first come in, there's a list of all the patients that I need to see, okay? And it's anywhere between like 20 and 30 patients that I need to see. Um, and so I have to move at a pretty good pace to be able to see all of them, okay? And I don't know if one visit's gonna last five minutes or another visit's gonna last like 30 minutes, okay? Because I have to meet each patient where they are and some patients need more emotional and spiritual support than others, right? So I have this list of patients that I need to see, and uh, I, have a little, um, I have a little clipboard with the names, okay? And then it's, it's one of those like storage clipboards where I have like little mini pocket Bibles and like cards, uh, encouragement cards and prayer cards. And I, I, I'll walk around the hospital like this, right? And I'm going into each room and then I'm asking them, my name is Al, I'm your chaplain for today. I'm here to provide spiritual and emotional support. I say this like 30 times a day, okay? I'm like a broken record. And then I ask, how are you doing today? Um, not like Joey Sleazy from Friends. Okay, like how are you doing? 
Uh, but it's more like, how are you doing today? And then uh, from there, I could tell almost immediately how long the visit's gonna be, right? By, based on their response to that first question. And after seeing like five to 10 patients, right? I, I get kind of tired, right? And I actually, you know, sometimes I run out of Bibles, I run out of cards, so I just need a break, right? And um, my voice is like dry, okay? And so I go down back to my chaplain's office, I fill up my clipboard with mini Bibles and cards, okay? So I'm, I'm uh, what is it? Oh, I'm, I'm refueling, okay? I'm like filling that up again, okay? Literally, I'm filling up my clipboard with supplies. And uh, I get a drink, I sit down, because most of the time I'm walking or standing. I sit down, I just rest, right? That's when I get my rest. And uh, sometimes if I see another chaplain there who's also on their break, I'll talk to him or her. I'm like, hey, how's your day? And then they'll vent, like, oh, I had this really difficult patient. And I'm like, and, I'm, and, we just, I'm, and I'm like feeding back and then I'll say, oh yeah, this one patient I had, uh, her husband just passed away, so she, it was really hard. And we would vent and we would share, right? And then after just a couple minutes of doing that, we're ready to go back out and see some more patients. So if Jesus was like the base camp for the disciples and the followers in the first century, where do you think our base camp is as Jesus' followers today? Anyone? Can anyone guess? The church, yes, the church, okay? The church is our base camp, okay? The church is our base camp for the people of God, for the children of God. Uh, this is supposed to be the place where we get refueled, rest, and recharged, okay? Uh, you get refueled in the sense that like uh, you're better equipped, okay? We're kind of being a Christian in LA in the 21st century is really hard, right? And we don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers, right? So we come together, we study the word, right? And we worship. Uh, this is kind of like our way for our, our spirits to get refueled, right? And then we also experience rest, okay? I don't know about you guys, but sometimes when I try to live as a Christian out there, um, it, it, I, I feel like this tension, right? And um, when I'm trying to be a good follower of God and trying to share the love of God with others, it, it could be tiring, okay? It could be, it could be hard and it could be tiring. But here, I could just be completely myself. And that's one of the things I love about like church planning, starting a new church, is that I don't have to fit into the culture of an existing church. When I used to be um, uh, a youth pastor at a large Korean megachurch, oh my God, I had to be like so fake. <laughs> so much bowing and like so much like polite talking and like um pretending like i was this person that i'm not you know like when they would talk about like uh how drinking alcohol is bad i'll be like oh yeah drinking alcohol is really bad it's really i never touch the stuff you know <laughs> i'll be like straight up lying to them and i'd be like fitting now now that i'm here um i love the fact that i could just be honest and like when I'm like that, like I do feel like a certain rest and restoration in my spirit. And it's also where I get recharged. I ask, I'm checking in with people, I'm asking them how they're doing and they ask me how I'm doing and it's a good way for me to be like emotionally recharged. But the misconception that a lot of people have, uh, a lot of Christians, especially like coming out of like the modern church period in the 20th century is that 
they think the church is a battleground. And this is the place where spiritual battles happen. But it's not. Okay? This is a base camp. Church is the base camp. The battleground is out there. Okay? Church is not a battleground. It is a base camp. Okay? The battleground is what happens like Monday through Saturday. When you go to work, when you go to hang out with your friends, when you go be with your family, that's the battleground. But instead of fighting in this spiritual battle with violence, with hatred, and with force, we are fighting with love, compassion, and generosity. And we come back to church to be encouraged, to get refueled, to be rested, and to feel recharged. All of the work happens out there by you. Before, the modern church mentality in the 20th century was that they didn't want to do the work themselves, and so they would wait till Sunday, and then maybe they would bring their friend with them to church, and they just want the pastor to do all the work for them. Okay, that's what I mean by saying they think that sun, like church is the battleground. Okay? But church is the base camp for you to get recharged and to go out there and to do the work that God has called you to do, just like Jesus did with 72 followers. The other thing that we need to come to understand about the journey is that the journey has failures, all right? The journey has failures, and we have to expect this. Right at the beginning of when Jesus is huddling the 72 together and like sending them out, uh, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his field. And then verse 3 says this, go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. <laughs> That's not very encouraging, right? <laughs> what happens to lambs like among wolves, right? They get torn up, right? They get uh, shred, okay? They get shred to pieces. So what he's ultimately saying is like, you're going to experience some hurt, okay? It's going to be hard. You're going to experience rejection and failure, all right? And then he says uh, in, um, later on in verses uh, 10 and 11, he gives like specific examples. He says, when you enter a town and you're not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you, okay? It's kind of like if, if this was like the um, Jay-Z version of the Bible, he would say, brush the dust off your shoulder, okay? Brush the dirt off your shoulder, all right? Uh, he's saying this very specific example because it's bound to happen, okay? He's saying, like, you're going to go into some towns, and they're not going to accept you. They're going to reject you, okay? You're not even going to, like, be able to step past a few feet into their town. When that happens, dust yourself off and move on to the next town. So if you are trying to live the life that God has called you to live, okay, a life of love, a life of compassion, a life of sharing, a life of mimicking, imitating Jesus Christ, and you experience rejection, that means you're actually doing some good work. Okay, that actually means that you are obeying God. Okay, that means that you are actually following the calling that God has given in your life. Jesus expected his disciples and followers to experience rejection, and so we should expect no less. And just in general, um, living with a fear of rejection is a terrible way to live. And I'm not just talking about your spiritual life, right? I'm, I'm talking about like just every area of your life, right? If, if we live with 
this constant fear of rejection, um, then it's, it's paralyzing. It prevents us from really living the life that God has called uh, you to live. Right? If you live with this constant fear of rejection, you might not apply to any of the jobs that you really want to apply to. If you live with this constant fear of rejection, you might not be with the woman or the man that you really want to be with because you don't want to be rejected. Okay? If you live with this constant fear of rejection, you are going to limit yourself in so many ways. So just in general, not just in your spiritual life, but in just our everyday lives, it's just a terrible way to live. So if you live life with this expectation that like sometimes you're going to fail, sometimes you are going to be rejected, then that probably means you're doing the right thing. <laughs> that probably means you're like putting yourself out there and you're living with boldness and courage. And the last thing uh, that, uh, oh, the title of that is from last week. Sorry about that. The last thing that the journey uh, teaches us is that uh, the journey is more important than the destination. And this is uh, pretty much the central truth uh, that I shared in the beginning, but I think it uh, bears repeating. And what's really profound is this, okay? Um, in verse 9, when uh, Jesus told them what to say, he said, heal the sick and who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. Okay. Uh, the original language for this is the kingdom of God is at hand. Have, does, does that sound familiar to any of you? The kingdom of God, God is at hand. When I, a lot of people used to think that this was talking about like Jesus' second coming or like the apocalypse or the rapture or something like that. But the actual language it's saying is the kingdom of God is in your hand. The kingdom of God is right there. It's, it's, technically, it's not near you. It's right here in your hand. And then Jesus repeats this um, later on in uh, verse 11. He says, uh, when you move on from a town, he, he, tell them again, the kingdom of God is near. It's at hand. It's literally like in your, it's at the grasp of your fingertips. So what Jesus is saying is like, it's, it's, this is not about talking about the kingdom of God that will come much, much later. The kingdom of God is here now. And for the, for the followers, okay, they're, they're, literally, they're literally saying to these towns like, Jesus is right there. <laughs> he's there. like, yeah, he's right up on the hill. He's just like observing us, okay? He's right there. The kingdom of God is like right at the grasp of your hands, okay? He's right there. So this is Jesus saying like our goal as the people of God, as, as his followers, is to bring heaven here on earth. And I don't know why we lose sight of this. And I don't know why we think that the goal of the Christian life is simply to secure our, our place in heaven. That's not the goal of our lives, okay? The goal of our lives is to bring heaven here on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, Jesus literally taught us to pray this in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is the purpose of our lives as God's people, to bring the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. 
I think so many times uh, as Americans, we tend to be so uh, goal-oriented, right? We, we tend to be so focused on the end or the result or the outcome that we forget that the joy to be had is actually in the journey, especially in our Christian lives, okay? The joy to be had is actually more so in the journey and not the destination. Uh, as you all know, uh, yesterday was the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Um, now, our, oh gosh, I'm like um, <laughs> dating myself. <laughs> but like, I'm wondering, like, are you guys old enough? <laughs> Do you remember 9-11? You guys were probably all kids, right? Okay. <laughs> God. Okay. Um, well, uh, I, I remember very vividly when 9-11 happened. Um, I was a college student, and it was still summer break. I think it happened on a, it was a Tuesday, right? It was a Tuesday morning, and it was summer break, so I was still at my parents' house. I was uh, sleeping in, okay, and then my my dad, uh, he like it was such a rude awakening. He he came he barged into my room. And he's like, "Oh, wake up! America is under attack." And I was like, "What the heck?" So I thought I was I thought I was gonna have a heart attack, right? And I. Obviously, I thought he was crazy or exaggerating, right? And so I was like uh, rubbing my eyes. I was like, what's he talking about? And so I go down to the living room, and he's watching TV. And then I see these two buildings that are like smoking. And I, 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 then I really thought I was going to have a heart attack. I, I couldn't believe this was real, right? That I, what I was watching on the news, what was happening in, in New York. And um, the headline said, uh, America under attack, right? You know, the big headline on the bottom of the screen. And I, I saw the buildings collapse, like, live, right? When the first building came down, and then a little bit later, the second building came down. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe what I was watching, right? I was, I was in dismay. I was in disbelief. And that was the first time that I ever experienced fear for my nation, for my country, and that was also the first time I really realized uh, how short and fragile our lives really are. I was a college student, you know, so I didn't really think about like the brevity of life or anything like that. I was just like worried about like what class I was gonna take next quarter or whatever. And uh, when I watched those two buildings go down, I was like, oh my God, life is so short. We don't know when we're gonna die, I don't, we don't know when it's gonna go away. And, um, and yesterday I, I saw this, okay, I saw this um, post on Instagram from one of my favorite authors, Brene Brown, and she was resharing this tweet from this guy, uh, this un another author, uh, Adam Grant, the most meaningful way to honor those we lost is to live with honor, choosing compassion over callousness and dignity in the face of disdain, upholding your principles when others compromise theirs, being grateful for precious time that too many were denied. Now, obviously, he's not using like Christian or spiritual language, but I think he is actually capturing the essence of what it means to be living as a child of God. Our lives here are so fragile and so short 
does it make sense to you that the goal of this life is simply just to say the right words to secure our place in heaven and then just live our life the way that we want and uh, the way that the rest of the world lives? Or is there a greater purpose to the short life that we have here on earth? As I said, as I shared earlier, um, the church is the base camp and the battleground is out there. And we are all God's children. We are all God's soldiers in this battle. But instead of fighting with violence, weapons, and force, we fight with love, compassion, and generosity. But as you live the life that God has called you to live, you will experience joy in the journey and a peace in your spirit that we cannot get from anywhere else. Let's pray. Lord, this weekend we are profoundly reminded of how fragile and short and unexpected life truly is. Even as we shared earlier about loved ones loss uh, unexpectedly and tragedy that happens unexpectedly. Lord, help us to make the most of the time that we have here and to live as you have called us to live. As we have prayed before, as Jesus himself has taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. Have a blessed week.